Hey, this episode was broken up into three parts. In the first part, I talk about girl dinner. The girl dinner trend on TikTok has had beautiful yet unintended consequences of reclaiming the word girl in a way that empowers women and redefines the domestic expectations of labor for women. In this part, I talk about the language we use to talk about women, as well as the language we use as women ourselves. In the second part, I talk about work-life balance, specifically the harms of separating work and life too much. When we cast rigid boundaries between our personal and professional lives, we may be compromising the psychological safety of our workplace or uni environment. And finally, I talk about having a type A personality. The weaknesses of having a type A personality can become our strengths, although it requires adjustments to the ways in which and with whom we spend our time. Hey everyone, welcome back. Before I start, I'm going to break the fourth wall for a second and talk about the position in which I'm sitting right now. Essentially, sometimes when I record this podcast, I get a little bit stiff in front of the microphone and I figured the solution to that is to not sit in my ergonomic chair but to tilt it all the way back. So now I'm basically lying down right now, I'm 45 degrees back and it looks exactly like that picture with Cillian Murphy and Margot Robbie where she's sitting in a chair but he's standing, his body is entirely flat but he's also sitting on the chair at the same time. That just so just to give you an image of what I look like right now, that is me. Anyway, let's get into the life update. Yesterday I was talking to a friend about how it feels when you show up somewhere without any makeup and someone makes a comment on how tired you look or worse, how sick you look. Like, I genuinely can't believe this happens. Why are we making comments about how sick someone looks? If someone looks sick, don't you think they would feel it themselves before you started to notice that they were looking sick? And if they are sick, like, are they even sick? Or is it because you can see their eye bags and the brows that haven't been filled in or their uneven skin tone? And these things are entirely normal. To keep it brief... It's not anybody's fault that these awkward conversations happen where it's like the, oh, are you okay? You look really sick. No, I'm not sick. I'm just not wearing makeup today. These conversations shouldn't take place, but it's when they do, it's not anyone's fault. It's not the commentator's fault because they're just saying something out of concern. They've noticed a change and that's fair enough, but it's also not the fault of the person wearing makeup because... As a makeup wearer myself, I don't feel responsible for the unrealistic beauty standards that are perpetuated by the beauty industry and capitalism to make women feel subconsciously insecure about the way they look because it profits the industry. Like that's not, that is not my responsibility to bear. I wear makeup because I think it enhances my features and I love the way that it looks on my face. But even though I don't feel like I am the perpetrator of this problem. I have figured out a solution that I want to share with you. It's actually not a solution that will do anything for the world. It just prevents me from having to experience these conversations. And so that I don't have to get any comments that go 
along the lines of, um, you look a bit sick today, are you okay? And that is, I have started to not wear makeup around the people who only see me in makeup. So my close friends and family and the people I see every day at the hospital have obviously seen what I look like normally, but there are a select people, a select group of people who have only seen me with makeup because I only see them at birthdays or bars or events or formal things, you know, where I know when I'm wearing glam. And if they've only seen me in my glam look, how are they supposed to know that I'm not deadly ill looking when I choose not to wear makeup one day? So by not wearing makeup, sometimes I'm calibrating them. And the analogy that I have is, say, like in politics, you have, you know, the concept of shifting the Overton window. In this case, the analogy is that when I'm wearing makeup, it's, say, right wing politics. And when I'm not wearing makeup, it's left wing politics. And to these people, the people who only see me in glam, their Overton window is a little bit right sided. But when I don't wear makeup in front of them, which they've never seen before, I'm introducing like some, it'd be the equivalent of introducing some really left wing radical policy, right? And then it shifts the window and makes it a little bit more center. Anyway, I don't even know if that analogy makes sense, but it's, it's a bit ridiculous. But like that is how I'm going to be tackling this problem from now on. And then it also means on the days where my makeup looks a little bit patchy, it's fine. It's like, it's normal. And then on the days where my makeup looks clean, pristine and fabulous, it's a sweet treat for the world. So it's a win-win for me. Anyway, I hope that analogy makes sense. Uh, It probably doesn't because it's a bit insane. Oh, anyway, that was the life update. I'm going to get into, let's get into the actual episode now. Okay, so now that I have finished um, my five minute spiel on calibrating people by not wearing makeup, I want to talk about a concept that I've been reading into and it's something really interesting to keep in mind in both casual everyday conversation but also the way that we subconsciously use our words. I want to talk about the way we are reclaiming the word girl in everyday language through the social media trend, girl dinner. But before I talk about girl dinner, I want to cover the context on why people are reclaiming the word girl and how this relates to the use of gendered language in everyday English. So let's go back a little bit. In 2016, The hashtag words at work was trending when Australian of the Year and former Army Chief David Morrison launched a Diversity Council Australia, which cracked down on or which aimed to crack down on language which excluded minority groups. Big slay. In general conversation, the word guys, as in hey guys, is used for groups of people which both include and don't include men. And one of the ways that I relate to this idea or the way that I think about this idea is through this example. Last year, one day in class, our teacher said, okay guys, as she addressed us. 
Then she stopped herself and apologized for using the word guys and said that she was making an effort to use more gender neutral language and switched to hey everyone instead. Then she made a brief comment about how medicine and the language of medicine in particular is already so outdated, which means that the use of gender inclusive language or basically like medical language in general is archaic and decades behind other industries. So it was important to her that she made uh, an effort to correct herself here. And this is the moment where it clicked for me. I think it took a while for it to click to me. I I was probably like 18 or 19 at the time. And almost all the time when people use guys in hey guys, they're not intentionally using gendered language to be misogynistic. It seems harmless and it's a sociable, it's a socially acceptable way to greet people. But that's the problem. The problem is it feels harmless and that's not because it is, but because it's so entrenched in the way that we communicate to each other that it feels normal. But the thing is, saying hey guys to people, both like men, women and any gender, it's not a slur but it's a subtle yet ever-present part of our language and vocabulary. But language is a powerful tool in the way that it not only expresses, but also dictates the way that we think. And the thing is, there's no need to comment on the genders of people in a room, either consciously or subconsciously, if their gender isn't relevant to the conversation. So some words we can use instead of, hey guys, would be, Hey team, hey everyone. I also googled at a few other alternatives and one of them was hey trailblazers. But I didn't know what that was so I googled it. And trailblazer is a basketball team. So I don't know what that is. I'm not really sure. I just use hey everyone. (laughs) I use hey everyone and hey team. I think that's good. You can also use hey rangers. I think that one's quite fun. Similarly, in everyday conversation and even in workplace settings, men are referred to as men, but women are referred to as girls, regardless of their age. And I also want to talk about the word girls and the word women. It can be unintentionally patronizing at best, but demeaning at worst when people are addressed as a child and being implicitly seen as less mature and capable because they're a woman. And because of this, it's important that we refer to people who identify as women as women, not girls, not chicks, not birds, but women. And even if I step out of this commentary for a second and speak not as a woman, but just as a person, I think it's weird that people call women birds. It's, it's, it just doesn't make sense. Like I, I see people use it and like, um, when I listen to radios and stuff, I think it's weird. Anyway, if you're interested, you can find an article on Washington Post's workplace advice column titled, I'm a manager, but to my boss and colleagues, I'm a girl. And this article discusses how referring to adult women as girls is sexist and sheds light on how it can influence women's perceptions of themselves and negatively impact their careers. So now that I've covered all the pre-reading of the use of guys in a gendered manner, even though it seems ungendered, and the use of girls and women, 
I'm going to talk about girl dinner. Girl dinner is about reclaiming language in the context of domestic labor. The word girl in girl dinner is about the experience of being a woman. The patriarchy upholds itself because it's deeply institutionalized, but also unfortunately because women play some role in upholding it by internalizing it and embodying these rigid, archaic expectations for themselves and other women. Hence, we have the term internalized misogyny. We keep checks and balances on ourselves. We keep ourselves in line. We know when we aren't fitting into the molds in which society have dictated for us and consequently punish ourselves for it. Traditionally, women made nutritious and fulfilling meals for the family. And if a woman can't cook, if a family doesn't like her meals, it was something to be ashamed about. Therefore, something we would keep to ourselves and not share with other people. And here's where girl dinner comes in. Girl dinner is a really fun concept that's currently or was was trending on social media. Girls will put cheese and some old crackers on a plate and claim that's their dinner. Girl dinner. The reality is people have been making these meals well before girl dinner was a trend. But now this trend has encouraged women to show each other their girl dinners and normalize these abominable meals that women in history would have been ashamed for preparing and showing to other people. Zoe Condliffe, a highly accomplished gender advocate and researcher with a PhD in digital feminist activism, phrases the power of people sharing their girl dinners online in this beautiful and eloquent sentence I'd like to read out for you. It goes, The digital space and the proliferation of women being able to share how they live with other women actually provides us with a strength and solidarity because social media allows for a democratization of narratives. This is genuinely a stunning sentence. And she goes on to say, the subtext of girl dinner is that people are responding to the patriarchy and saying, you're going to call me a girl, then you're getting girl dinner. All the subtext aside, I know it's just a trend. It's silly, goofy, and it just came about because some woman just posted a picture of a measly looking dinner and made a joke about it. It probably didn't come with the intention of empowering the feminist movement through the digital space in any way. But I don't think this analysis is a stretch in any way, and it's just a beautiful consequence of what seemed like a silly little trend and... I think it just made me feel so good reading about it that I really wanted to share it on the pod. But there are caveats to girl dinner. It's not entirely harmless. Interestingly, I think one of the reasons why it fizzled out so quickly was it became a competition as to who could have the smallest dinner rather than the ugliest, least nutritious dinner. It was shifting away from oh my god guys, look at how horrific my dinner looks, but that's okay, I'm sharing with the world my way to retaliate against patriarchal society, and towards, look at what I'm eating, it's very little, this is very funny, ha 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 ha, you know. And another interesting thing about girl dinner is that boy dinner became a thing, something to think about as well. 
So that was something interesting that I came across and did some reading and research on. Next, I want to talk about time anxiety and type A personalities. What does it mean to have a type A personality? Well, the significance of type A and B personalities came about from Friedman and Rosenman, who were two cardiologists, who conducted a longitudinal study to test their hypothesis that type A personality could predict incidence of heart disease back in 1976. Side note, uh, I only found this out because I was at dinner and I was talking about thinking about writing a, you know, doing a pod episode on type A personalities. And then one man from the dinner table said, oh, yeah, I think people with type A personalities are likely to die quicker just from like stress and the cardiovascular risk of stress. So that's mortifying because not only am I here for a short time, I'm also here for a not very good time. Um, Yeah, it's not even the best of both worlds. It's the worst of both worlds. The classification of personalities aren't very strict and they shouldn't be strict because humans are so complex and nuanced, but they're useful descriptors that help us understand certain patterns of behavior and tendencies. So I do need to keep this in mind. There's no way that we can box ourselves into strict personality types like type A or B, even the 16 MBTI or Myers-Briggs personalities, but If we do have some kind of grouping and classification, it helps us feel a little bit more understood to some degree. So in scientific papers, type A personalities are characterized as aggressive, achievement oriented, dynamic, hard driving, assertive, ambitious, irritated, angry, and hostile under time pressures. Whereas people with type B personalities tend to go with the flow and be less stressed with their personal and professional goals and standards. This also means that they can be more agreeable to work with because where type A people are likely to have tendencies to be ambitious, perfectionist and time urgent, type B personalities can be more accepting of people's emotions and can tend to go with the mood at the moment. They're also more supportive of others and more likely to express positive feelings and be satisfied with their jobs. I also wanted to make a side note and point out the slander against people with type A personalities in that phrase that I read from the scientific papers. Like the issue I had with this paper was it was straight up violence. They they talk about type A personalities as if they're some kind of monster and then people with type B personalities are angels on earth and there's not only just A and B there's also a few more um personality type type D personality which is pessimistic and type T personality which is thrill seeker but I'm not going to focus those on the pod today What I do want to talk about are two interesting things I found when I was reading about type A personalities and I want to reflect on them and discuss them today. The first one being ambition and work-life balance and the second one being time anxiety. So under ambition and work-life balance it says people with type A personalities are more likely to be competitive in their per personal and professional life and have high standards for themselves. 
For example, they can be thorough planners. And I like I recognize this in myself and like friends who plan holiday itineraries down to the hour or have their entire life on their Google Calendar. This makes sense. They can also be more likely to get a heart attack. Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, yeah. They also have a strong work ethic and a tendency to multitask, which can sometimes lead to burnout and anxiety if not managed properly. People with type A personalities may find it challenging to strike a balance between their personal and professional lives as they often prioritize work and accomplishments over relaxation and self-care. It makes sense, but like I relate to being a thorough planner, but I don't really have problems with work-life balance and struggling because I mix them, the, the two categories together too much. My issue is actually the opposite that I separate work and life so much to the point where sometimes they become entirely mutually exclusive. I subconsciously don't share anything about my life that's personal, which is ironic because I will share some of like my deepest dilemmas on the pod. But in real life, I only talk about my truly personal life and like deep thoughts with a handful of people. And because I don't like mixing my personal and professional life, it can really compromise the psychological safety of being at placement or work in the future. Because when conflict arises and I'm feeling overwhelmed, it's physically impossible for me to debrief with my friends at placement in a way that makes me feel entirely supported and at ease. And I sometimes have to go to go home and wait till I can see my sister or talk to a friend on the phone to or like journal to to get that relief and this only came to my attention or like yeah this light bulb moment only came to my attention this week shout out to um the person who helped me realize this if you're listening um but it made me realize that these boundaries that i set are so severe that it's impacting sort of the enjoyment or the support system that I have when I'm at placement. Psychological safety is a shared belief held by members of a team that it's okay to take risks, to express their ideas and concerns, to speak up with questions and to admit mistakes, all without fear for negative consequences. It's felt permission for candor. I also want to make a side note and say this is in no way a reflection of how wonderful my friends are at placement. Like these, the people that I spend with, the people that I spend time with at placement are some of my closest and wonderful friends. I have some of my most happiest memories with these people. This is only about sharing and my ability to be emotionally vulnerable in the workplace and this is on me uh it's because i don't share the mistakes that i make um and because of like i'm not sharing it negatively impacts my learning and my performance and my creativity and resilience in placement and the same goes for any other relationships i that I have, that I talk about on the pod. It's never about the other person. It's never an attack on the people that I love or people that I'm spending time with. These are only my reflection experiences with the people in my life 
because this is about the experience of being in your 20s. So whenever I talk about someone on the pod, it's a promise. It's never an attack. The second thing about type A personalities is time anxiety. So this is what I found in my research. Time anxiety occurs where people have ongoing feelings of uneasiness and even dread around the passing of time. It's a sensation that you're wasting your time. There are three types of time anxiety. One, daily time. Two, tomorrow time. And three, existential time. Daily time is the feeling of being rushed, overwhelmed and stressed from feeling like there aren't enough hours in the day. Tomorrow time is worrying about what you've done so far and whether in, whether it's enough for the future. And existential time is panic about our limited time on earth. Some common symptoms of time anxiety include worrying about being late to things to a degree that it makes us feel extremely nervous or angry, feeling uncomfortable when you don't finish everything you plan to do. For example, instead of celebrating what's been done, there's a big focus on what you could have done in that time. And worrying about missing out on life opportunities. If you're focusing too much on achieving, if you're focusing too much on achieving romantic relationship milestones, you may feel like you're behind professionally and vice versa. I definitely have daily time kind of time anxiety. Um, I feel rushed and overwhelmed regularly, almost every day. Um, so I wanted to talk about how I am trying or like how I, some of the things that I found have been, that have been useful in making time anxiety a strength out of what would have been a weakness. So I came to a conclusion that there are three ways I have decided or I have tried to use to turn the weaknesses of being a type A person into strengths. The first one is prioritizing, but more than prioritizing, it's finding the things that give my life meaning and finding the things that I feel that I'm getting the most out of it relative to the time that I spend doing that thing. For family and friends, it's about having meals and talking to people who make me feel excited, understood and relaxed because I can fully be myself around them and choosing who I spend time with more wisely. With hobbies, I decided that I actually get a lot of relaxation and enjoyment from a lot of the things that I do. When I'm painting, when I'm watching Netflix, when I'm journaling. But if I had to pick one of them, then I would pick journaling because it makes me feel the most calm relative to the time that I put towards it. So if I'm picking something to wind down with, I'll pick journaling instead of um, watching Netflix, even though I love both of them and I like I have a, I have a Netflix obsession for sure, but um, I feel more relaxed when I'm journaling. So when I'm on a time crunch, I will journal instead. The second thing is scheduling relaxation time, something that I didn't do until only a few years ago where... I would block out 
4 to 10 p.m. every Friday on my calendar so that I can't put anything on my calendar on Friday nights so that I'm relaxing during that time. And if I happen to be going out or going to a dinner or anything on that on a Friday night, then I just move the block that I've titled as like block out time or relaxation time to another day to make sure that I have it at least once a week. And every Monday, I block out 90 minutes to give myself time to go to Pilates. And that gives me time to drive there, to do the class, then to come back. And because it's already in my calendar, then it's automatically, um, yeah, I don't have to think about having to go to Pilates and booking a class. Like it's just automatic. Every Friday, I go online and then I book my Monday Pilates class. And the third thing is support groups or therapy. One thing I'd really like to do is to have someone as an objective observer help me with healthier coping strategies and managing perfectionism and competitiveness. But it's never one person's job. It should never be the job of a partner or a family member or a close friend to fully fulfill (laughs) entirely fulfill your psychological needs right so for me it would be a mixture of a psychologist a close friend and a partner I think those three ideally are for me on top of my sister and as much as I love therapy I've got years of experience with it it's helped me through some of the most difficult years of my high school life and I think everyone could benefit from therapy and and psychological help to unpack the traumas that we encountered and experienced as kids regardless of whether or not we think we need therapy or regardless or regardless of whether or not we're going through a major life change or a distressing period like I want to make that clear but I think therapy and finding a good psychologist is so hard And I've been really struggling with this one for a while because I'm not finding anyone that I click with. And while I share a lot about my day with my friends and family, there are parts about my personality that are so deeply locked into my subconscious that I don't talk about it because I don't even understand it. And I think I'd really like to find someone Um, who would be able to unpack that because they've just got a lot more experience with it and they probably have unpacked it in themselves as well. Finding a therapist is really difficult, but it's really worth it. It's just tiring at the moment because trying to find a new therapist, it's not like trying a new dish at a restaurant because when you meet a new therapist, say it's an hour session, right? It's like going on a first date. Except at the end of this first date, they know so much about you and you don't know anything about them. And when it's the first session, you're not really unpacking things. It's more like, here is a summary of my life and the things that are on my mind right now. And I don't know, I just don't really feel like I get a lot out of the first session because they don't have any background to go off of. So it's just exhausting. And... If you, yeah, it's just exhausting. And then I like leave the first session not really feeling like I've unpacked anything. 
but not really liking the way that I've clicked with this person. So I have to book another session with a new person and do it all over again. But I am determined to keep trying and going on as many first date sessions with psychologists or therapists until I find someone that I click with, who I, with whom I click with, with whom, until I find someone with whom I click. All right. Well, that's all I have for this episode. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time. Bye. I did a lot of research for the preparation of this episode and I'd like to make references to four of the main articles I used in particular. First of all, published on Forbes, an article titled Type A Personality, Common Traits and Lifestyle Tips. Another one published on Harvard Business Review titled What is Psychological Safety? The third one published on ABC News, hashtag words at work, David Morrison wants Australians to stop saying gender-based terms like guys. And fourthly, published on Clockify, a blog titled Time Anxiety, What It Is and How You Can Deal With It.